From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Hi there. I'm here to invite you to travel with me around the country to visit one-room schools, public schools, where one teacher has all the grades together. It's sort of like going back in time. The one-room school in the 21st century. I think it's fair to say that, mentally speaking, I never left high school. But my high school experience was definitely an unusual one. The school was big. 14 gyms, two pools, three theaters, an auto shop, a planetarium, wood-burning fireplaces that were lit the week before Christmas, and over 4,000 kids. And I loved it. It was vibrant and dynamic and teeming. But there is an appeal to the smaller, more intimate atmosphere. More individual attention, getting to know your teachers better, a family-like community. Today on ReSound, the smallest school of them all, the one-room schoolhouse. Veteran producer Nina Ellis went to visit a dozen one-room schoolhouses to see what was going on in these vestiges of a time gone by. We invited Nina to talk to us about her documentary, and I asked her how this came to spark her interest, or better yet, how she even came to know of the existence of the modern-day one-room schoolhouse. Well, the first thing was a documentary film that I saw. It was a French film called To Be and to Have, and it was captivating. It was beautiful. It was about a little village where they had a one-room school and a teacher who'd been there most of his career. La pluie tombe. Tombe. Tombe un chien. Chien à bois. And I just couldn't believe the closeness that he had with his students. And I thought, wow, you know, I've never seen that in a public school, and I wonder if that goes on in the United States, and I, gee, I wonder if we have one-room schools left. So I started to look into it and um, found it hard to get information, which intrigued me too. So it was just kind of one door opening onto another door, and I kept walking through those doors and finding things that I had never known about and was interested in. I, I like American history. I love to be in rural parts of America, and this kind of uh, touched on all those things for me. Death Valley, California is hours from the nearest city, no matter which direction you come from. You'll find the National Park headquarters easily, go down the road a bit, and see a dusty brown cement block school with a flat roof tucked smoothly into the landscape. The playground is empty at recess time. It's too hot to play outside today. So the kids are square dancing in the classroom. Get ready. Go! This is a diverse group. Out of 11 kids at Death Valley Elementary School, five speak Spanish at home. One is Shoshone. Most of their parents work service jobs at hotels and restaurants in the National Park, and all the kids here qualify for free or reduced-price lunches. Taylor, I have some letters for you to look at. This is the teacher, Leslie Rowan, working with Taylor Alford, who's five years old. What letter is this? Oh! Oh, what does O sound like? When Taylor started kindergarten, she couldn't speak. She just pointed and grunted. 
What letter is this? H. Very good. She'd been evaluated by professionals who said she would probably never speak or learn to read. They said she had a speech and language delay, that she couldn't process what she was hearing. But the teacher didn't believe it. She said she'd seen a sparkle in Taylor's eye. And when she couldn't get the school system to send a specialist out to help Taylor, she found a volunteer, a former preschool teacher named Olivia Dotson Reynolds, to work with Taylor twice a week. Remember I was telling you about the special things we were doing? Yeah. Dolls? Yes. What is this? Rabbit. These are? These are rabbits. Very good. Can you tell me what colors you see? Blue, green, pink, orange, yellow. Okay. And the teacher, Leslie Rowan, in between all the other kids' lessons, still has the time to work with Taylor, too, one-on-one, many times a day. What is that? Otter. It's an otter. Can you find the capital O's for me? Very good. Thank you. If this is an otter, what do you think this word is? Oh. Otter. Otter. Very good. Otter, otter. otter. He's clean. He is clean. (laughs) Why do you think he's clean? Because taking a shower. Taking a shower? It's made all the difference for Taylor, who's ready to go on to first grade now. It's hard to say what would have happened to her without this one-on-one help in kindergarten. If she'd been sent to a larger school, she might have had more services available to her. Leslie Rowan's thought a lot about that. She would have speech and language therapy, and she would most likely be out of the classroom off and on during the week and maybe a resource specialist that would come in and do one-on-one activities with her. But I don't know if she would have the compassion towards her that she has received from her classmates. This wonderful, little, diverse community has helped her grow by communicating with her and including her. I think that has a lot to do with Taylor's success. And it's true what Leslie Rowan says. The older kids do look out for Taylor, help her with her lessons, read to her. In the lunchroom, after having spent the morning teaching Taylor about the letter O, Mrs. Rowan begins a game on her behalf. Ask Taylor what Shrek is. What's what is Shrek? It? Ogre. Thank you. <laughs> What's Ogre start with? O. Taylor. Taylor, what does dog start with? D. What does cat start with? Uh, C. <laughs> What's ostrich start with? Uh, ostrich. Taylor. I don't know. Taylor. Oh, Taylor. Oh, Taylar. Oh. What does otter start with? It's O. What's H start with? H. <laughs> What's okay. horse start with? H. <laughs> what Noah start with? N. N. Okay. What's, What's Mrs. Mrs. Throne start with? What chocolate milk start with? Kids rarely fall through the cracks in a one-room school. I saw it over and over again. A boy with severe behavior problems soothed by a teacher who's got the time to hold him on her lap. Another one who struggled in a large urban school thrives in a one-room environment. And talented kids performing many grade levels beyond their ages because they can learn at their own speed. In the geographical center of Montana, on a sprawling ranch, is a little white schoolhouse. Inside, a teacher named Rhonda Long reads aloud. 
opened her throat and swallowed a goat. She swallowed the goat to catch the dog. Swallowed the dog to catch the cat. She sits on a child's chair reading to one boy while 12 other kids move around the room working on their own. She's interrupted constantly to answer questions, correct papers, fiddle with the computer, and glue things to things. In 60 seconds, she might deal with three different grade levels. At this moment, she's administering a geography quiz, overseeing a reading lesson, and supervising an art project. Got it? All right, Idaho South. Logan, is it your computer time? What happened at the end of the very, the very end of the story? It won't work, won't glue. Thirteen kids are learning at their own pace, getting the help they need when they need it. It's a pretty loose teaching style, and not all the teachers I met taught like this. But for Rhonda Long, it works. And besides, she says, the kids learn from hearing each other's lessons. I remember it was my second year out here, and I was teaching you know, change the F's to V's and add E's concept. And they were having trouble, and the, one of the younger kids finally looked at him and said, it's just so simple, you just do this and this and this. And she wasn't even learning it. It was just that she'd been hearing it so much, us talking about it, and she's never had a problem. So it's, it's wonderful to see how, just by hearing it around, they pick it up. We do like this. What six times what equals four? I haven't done it. Oh, that? Four times what equals 24? Four times eight? 24! Oh, six. Yeah, six. And five, does five times six equal 30? Yeah. Okay. And then it's yes. This is something okay. else I saw frequently in one-room schools, kids teaching one another. Here, 12-year-old Clinton helps his twin sister, Claudia, and another sixth grader. Six divided by 12 is what? Seven, no, six. No, 12 divided by six is now? two. And two divided by t- ten divided by two is five. You may have noticed that these kids have a German accent. It's their first language. They're Hutterites. It's a religious sect, not unlike the Amish. And this school is on their communal ranch, the King Colony Ranch in Fergus County, Montana. See our schoolhouse with all our playground equipment for our children. Then on the background, there's this big snowy mountains of central Montana, covered with snow. Rita Hofer is the chairperson of the school board. And I think our place is one of the last best places in the whole world. Like the Amish, the Hutterites prefer to live far from cities, and many of the colonies keep their children on the ranch even after they finish eighth grade. But here at King Colony, Rita Hofer says, they've been working with the state on a five-year plan to start sending their kids to the public high school in town. Her son, Wesley, will be the first to graduate. He just said, Mom, I just want to go to school. He wanted to do it. I said, okay, we'll find a way. But it's there for the children if they just want to go and do it. It's there. Do they all want to go? Yeah, right now, yes. Yes. Do you think you'd like to go to high school after you're done with this English school here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, Melissa? Have you thought about that? Yes, just one year. How come? I don't know. To see how it feels going there. 
I understand that there's somebody here in your colony named Wesley who's graduating from high school. First one? Mm-hmm. He's the first one to graduate in high school. What do you think about that? I think it's going to be nice. Yeah, he's my cousin. He's on top of his class and everything. Is he? Yep. He knows everything. I look up to him every time if I need help. Montana has more rural students than any other state and nearly a hundred one-room schools. Kids from Montana's smallest schools typically do well academically, better than the urban kids. But many of the one-room schools I saw had just a handful of students and will soon be closing because Montanans, like many Westerners, are leaving the countryside for the city. The King Colony School felt like it had a secure future, though. The Hutterites are raising their kids to stay on the land. You're listening to The One Room School in the 21st Century by producer Nina Ellis. This is ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. We invited Nina in to tell us about her documentary, and we've already been to Death Valley, California, and rural Montana. In a minute, we're going to be going to Monhegan Island off the coast of Maine. Nina, tell us about the one-room schools in Maine. There are a number of one-room schools left in Maine. Many of them are on islands because they're so far from the mainland that uh, people don't want to put their kids on boats to send them to school. Monhegan is 13 miles from the mainland, and in the wintertime, when the weather's bad, the boat doesn't go. So you can be stuck out there for a long time. Uh, If you had to go to the dentist, you'd have to take the boat on Monday, go to the dentist on Tuesday, and take the boat back on Wednesday, if the boat is running. When I went, the seas were high, like 13-foot seas, and People were throwing up. And these are people who go on this boat all the time. You know, it's a very physically demanding life out there. Let's get back to the second part of Nina's documentary, The One-Room School in the 21st Century. A school in a very small community is more than a school. It's a meeting place, a community center. And the smaller the community, it seems, the more important the school. Today, east to southeast, winds 10 to 15 knots, increasing to The coast of Maine was windy and wet when I rode the ferry boat toward Monhegan Island in mid-December. The stout and stable Laura B., a World War II work boat, was loaded with boxes and backpacks and suitcases and lumpy canvas bags full of holiday mail. In winter, the Laura B. makes the crossing to Monhegan three times a week, if the weather permits. So the arrival is an event, and people turn out to greet us and help carry luggage and boxes. There are just a few vehicles on the island and one muddy road. It's not much more than a mile long from end to end, So most people were on foot like me. On this road in one week, I eventually met or saw everyone on the island, all 50 of them. It was Friday afternoon. I went up the road to the school. It's a tall, white, clabbered building perched on granite. It makes a classic photograph. There's a big collie dog sleeping by the front door. 
We're gonna do scene two. Are you ready? Okay, yeah. Rats. Nobody sent me a Christmas card. I know nobody likes me. I know. I almost wish there weren't a holiday season. I know nobody likes me. I just... Why do we have to have a holiday season to emphasize it? Thanks for the Christmas card you sent me, Schroeder. I didn't send you a Christmas card, Charlie Brown. Seven children and their teacher rehearsing a Charlie Brown Christmas on a low stage built into one end of the room. You think you're so smart with that blanket. What are you going to do with it when you grow up? On the stage with the kids is Angela Yanacelli in knee-high lobster boots. There aren't enough kids to fill out the cast, so she plays the part of Frida. Oh, this can't go on. There's too much dust. It's ruining my naturally curly hair. (laughs) It's a busy, cozy place to be. Angela's mom is making a backdrop for the stage. The teacher's husband is building a platform in front of it. And the preacher has come by with his family just to watch. In six short days, the whole community will come to the school to watch the kids perform for the annual Christmas party. Play practice goes on till after dark, which comes at 3.57. Well, as they say on TV, the mere fact that you realize you have a problem indicates that you are not too far gone. I think we'd Down the road and around the bend in the heart of the village, light pours out of the window of the tiny grocery store. It's only open a couple hours a day so it's crowded on Friday evening. It's owned by another school mom, Katie Bogle. I found her in the back kitchen. This is the uh, eggnog for the school Christmas party. Traditionally, it's supposed to be made a week in advance so it can mellow with the the rum. This is the traditional uh, recipe that was handed to me 20-some years ago except that we use rum instead of whiskey because that's what everybody on Monhagen would rather drink. That's probably good, huh, Lisa? That's a lot of rum. Oh, yeah. Monhegan Island is a tough place to live and wild. Most of it's accessible only on foot. In the summer, boatloads of day trippers hike in the aptly named Cathedral Woods and photograph each other on the cliffs named Black Head and White Head. The Atlantic Ocean trounces on the rocks below. Edward Hopper painted here, and Rockwell Kent, and more recently, Jamie Wyeth. You're liable to see painters at their easels today, even in the most secluded coves. They like the silvery light, the quiet, and the eerie timelessness. In the winter, Monhegan is less hospitable. From October till May, the lobstermen and their families claim it, and they're joined by the few others who don't mind the isolation and hard work. I don't know. It takes a special person to live on an island this far out. You know, we own, you know the community out here is small compared to some of the other islands. Swan's Island and Matinicus and Vinyl Haven, they've got two, 300 people. And here you've just got a handful. Big difference. I've been to the other islands and it's, I, I don't know, it's, it, they have tarred roads, so they're not islands as far as I'm concerned. They're islands, but then they're, they're more like the mainland. You know, here you've got gravel and stone. And it, uh, it truly is an island. Steve Rollins grew up on Monhegan and lobstered here for many years. 
It's the only place in Maine where they pull traps in the winter only. It can be lucrative, but it's a difficult life. Angela Yanacelli, the mom who's in the school play, works on a lobster boat from sunrise till dark. After 10 hours of being outside and after waking up at 5 in the morning, when you come home and your kids need you to do something or to be with them or both, and all I want to do is just go to bed. I mean, I just, I don't even care about eating. I just want to go to bed. And then there's the attitude. Everyone's cranky at five or six in, at night, you know. Every, the kids are just, they're, they're great kids, but they're not like they are in school. They come home and they just open up. And they need, they just seem to need so much. And I, it's all I can do to give it to them at the end of a fishing day. Would you be living here if there wasn't a school here? No. Well, no. I wouldn't. Uh, the school is one of the main reasons I'm here. Angela's boys and the four others from the school are sledding on the Monhegan Road on Sunday afternoon. You can hear them everywhere in the village. Monhegan Islanders are a mix of longtime residents and newcomers. They're here by choice. They want to raise their kids here, and so they need the school. There was a time in the 1960s when the school closed for lack of children, and no one wants to see that happen again. So which one do you want to try to figure out? XRD Eagles 5. How do you know? I take these two away. Uh-huh. And then take one away from here and one away from here. Now remember, this is X and that star, so can you... Oh, I see what you're doing. <laughs> Go ahead. Wow, I'm impressed, Dalton. Is it... Check the answer and make sure it's five. By all accounts, the kids are doing well at the school. All the parents say they're happy with the teacher, Sarah Caban. She came here right out of graduate school. It was her first job, and she says her perfect job. Well, I had being... Um, in graduate school, but not teaching except for my internships, I had a lot of big ideas about <laughs> what I thought was good education and that it should be community-based and that one of the big problems in, you know, I had all these ideas about what's wrong with public education and what I thought was wrong with it. And I read this book, and I think it was called Where's the Public in Public Education? And read it a lot and this looks to me like it's pretty authentic community-based education because it's so small. How could it not be? And because of its geographic isolation. So I'm always trying to think of ways, you know, besides just come up for our party, you know, where, where they're really taking part in the education. And that seems to be happening. People come to the school to read to the kids, to teach art and French, to help with science projects. Islanders give their time and their money, too. It's the biggest item in the town budget. So when the school Christmas party finally arrives, it's a time to celebrate their community and not just the holiday. A time for people to let go a little bit, stop worrying about the bills and the weather and the lobster catch for a few hours anyway. They fill the classroom with long tables and have a potluck dinner with a giant roast beef cooked rare and the eggnog, of course. And then they squeeze together 
everyone on the island to watch the play. I guess you're right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked that small tree. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Angela's son, Dalton, plays Linus. And there were in the same country shepherds in the f- in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and they were sore afraid. That and the angel said, and the angel said unto them, unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you, for unto you is born this day in the city city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find All the kids do well, and when the play is over, Lobsterman Steve Rollins slips out to put on the Santa outfit. There's a bit of a delay while he looks for his glasses in the snow. We need to sing Jingle Bells. Oh, oh, all right. And make Santa come now, because the kids are really ready. Are you ready to sing Jingle Bells? Ready? Go. <laughs> hey, hey, kids. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. Oh, Jingle. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Hey, dashing through the snow. A storm moved in during the play. And overnight, the weather got worse and worse. Good morning. Today, east to southeast winds 10 to 15 knots, increasing to southeast to southeast. At sunrise, I went down the road to the village, and the snow was blowing sideways. A figure moved toward me. It was Brian Hitchcock, who I'd met several times that week. He was a former New Yorker, former soldier former lobsterman, and now a photographer and man of many interests. He's been on the island since 1969. I found this story at a friend's house, and it was a Max Rosenthal photograph that was in Down East magazine in the 50s. Out of his coat, he brought a piece of paper with a poem on it. He didn't write it. He wanted me to hear it. There's this about islands down Maine. Self-reliance as if everything depends on how a man keeps his own mood and muscle in all the same brotherhood, more understood than said, of health and hope together. Brian read on to the end, but I only heard these words, a brotherhood more understood than said, of help and hope together. On this island, the future of the school is less certain. Every year, people come and go. The young ones have trouble affording it. The elderly have trouble getting around. But those who stay know they have to work together to keep their school and community alive. Brian folded the paper and gave it to me and then went on his way up the road. this country you can find one-room school buildings no longer being used as schools. Some are history museums, some are private homes, and some are hiding in the weeds by the side of the road. 
In Pike County, Ohio, not far from the Ohio River, if you drive the back roads, you'll find abandoned school buildings in Buck Hollow, Boswell Run, Omega, Stockdale, Beach Grove, Pine Top, Hay Hollow, Yankee Hill, and on the outskirts of the village of Beaver, population 464. Let us bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, for this day. We thank you, Father, for the men and women, dear God, that are serving in this country. And, Father, they're serving it well. And, Lord, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you, dear God, for each one that is out here today. The band, each one, the VFW. I went to Beaver one Memorial Day to the cemetery where folks had gathered in a light rain. And after the service, I met Vernon Hines, who was 86 years old. And we got to talking. And it turned out that he attended a one-room school just down the road from here. The Rapp School, it was called, because it was on Rapp family land. When the rain cleared up, we went to see it. The outside is weathered gray. It's being used for storage on a farm. I'm really impressed. Look how straight the ridge line is up there. The foundation, the old schoolhouse was built good when it was built. Solid. Eight years there, I learned everything I know. Do you remember when Mabel Adams came? Oh, yeah. I remember Mabel Adams well. Yeah? Oh, yeah. She was a good teacher. She was reading, writing, arithmetic. And she stressed writing. If you see her writing, you can see she done a good job because my writing looks like hers. Is that right? Yeah. That's interesting. She She really stressed it. And I had some beautiful writers, beautiful writers. They'll tell you that today. If I were, could turn my age around, you know where I'd be? In the schoolroom. You like teaching? I love teaching. Mabel Adams is 93 now and well-known in Pike County. She taught at the Rapp School in the 1930s during the Depression, which hit hard in this part of Appalachian, Ohio. They brought their lunch, you know, some not much. But every Monday morning, Ruth Blandy brought me, and it was delicious, and I'll never forget it. Her mom would bake from scratch pink and white cake. And one little girl that lived across the road was a little uh, Albie Cordell, was just a frail little girl. I said, I'd never forget. She said that, I love you. And she said, I want you to come over and eat with us. And I said, oh, honey, I can't do that. And she said, Grandma said you could. She lived with her grandparents. So Mrs. Cordell came over, and she said, I want you to come over. And uh, uh, Albert said, I have something I want to show you. And so I went in. uh, You know, they had fixed a meal like you couldn't believe, chicken and noodles and then all baked a pie of And she said, come in here, I want to show you something. And I went in on the lace curtain in the living room with this big cocoon. And she said, you know, there's something in that that's going to come out someday. And she said, when it comes out, will you come over and see it? And I said, I surely will. 
So, the most beautiful moth. Mrs. Cordell came over and got me. She said, now I want you to come over and see. Albert put her little hand in mine. It was so frail. You don't forget those things. There are still lots of people who can tell stories like these. In 1919, after the First World War, there were 200,000 one-room schools. When the Depression came, Americans started leaving the farms for city jobs. Small schools closed, and consolidation became the model. More and more kids were riding the school bus. After the next war, the trend continued, and by 1980, America had fewer than 1,000 one-room schools. Today, the estimates vary. The best guess is that 300 public one-room schools remain. There are private one-room schools being built, though, by the Amish. In the last decade, they've opened nearly 500. This is ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to The One Room School in the 21st Century, produced by Nina Ellis. We just heard about the steep decline in the numbers of the one room school. And Nina, I guess the big question is, why? The reasons for closing the one room school vary from in different parts of the country. Some of it was, as I mentioned, the teachers weren't very well educated. It was considered modern to have bigger schools. Sure. One-room schools were judged to be backwards, and everybody was rushing to uh, consolidate because, you know, this big kind of factory school, uh, those are my words, um, became trendy after World War II especially. So everybody wanted bigger schools to be modern. Truth be told... It's also a function of cost per student. You put kids into a bigger school, and some people will say that the cost per student goes down. Now, there are others who claim that this isn't necessarily the case and and who are fighting current efforts at consolidation, saying that in the long run, number one, you shouldn't put a value on it that way. But if you have to, factors balance out in favor of smaller schools. So we've been moving in this direction steadily for a hundred years. In the last part of Nina's documentary, we'll go to Hawaii and Nebraska, where one-room schools have closed, and to New Hampshire, where a tenacious community has kept their school open for 226 years and counting. So far, we've been to Montana, California, and Maine to visit one-room schools that are still open and going strong. But in 18 other states, the public one-room school is gone completely. The state of Hawaii closed its last one-room school in September 2005. It was on the island of Maui on the remote north shore in a village called Kei. Florence Harold was the last teacher at this school. There were only three students left in kindergarten through second grade. So musty. Here, I want to show you all these books. When I first came here, the books were all over the place. Oh, we must get rid of this books, blah, blah, blah. You can't do that. Now look at the age of these books. Why, I said, you know, we get new ones. Our grandfathers and our grandmothers read these books. You cannot get rid of it. 
Kayanai is a mostly native Hawaiian village, and it's one of the last places in all of the Hawaiian islands where people still grow taro on family-owned land. Taro is a root crop that grows in flowing water, and it's made into the most traditional Hawaiian dish called poi. But you can't support a family growing taro anymore, and so people drive an hour or more on the island to find jobs. Families have fragmented here, and many people have turned to drugs and alcohol, and now they've lost one of the few community institutions they had, the Kayanai School. All the Kayanai children are bused 45 minutes each way on a narrow, two-lane road that snakes through a rainforest on the slopes of a volcano to the town of Hana. Earl Medeiros is their bus driver. And then sometimes we get stuck. Maybe you got a landslide or you got trees across the road. What kind of weather is the most dangerous? Heavy rain? Rain and fog. When it's foggy, it can get pretty, and it can get pretty bad. So on a rain and a fog, it's is the works. The Hana School serves kids up to 12th grade, and most of them are native Hawaiian too. Every morning, they gather and sing the school song in Hawaiian and English. principal here has jurisdiction over the village school in Kayanai. It was his decision to close it. His name is Rick Paul. He did it, he says, because the Hana School needed the teaching position. We're a school that's in restructuring under No Child Left Behind. And we're a restructuring school because of our test results. Uh, we haven't made adequate progress for six years. And we needed to have as much uh, staffing as we could here. So if I move the three children here and the extra position, uh, it would help this school. So part of my decision had to do with uh, bringing Hana schools out of restructuring. The decision to close the school was very upsetting for some people in KNI, like Janet Rideau, whose grandchildren were at the one-room school and whose family has been here for generations. My dad has always told me, a community without a school is not a community. You need education for a community, and then you need church. You, you need to learn about the Lord. So he told me, whatever you do, fight for the school to remain open. Eileen Lee has come back to KNI for the slower pace. She also had grandchildren in the school. They're busing all our children out. So I told DOE, if you really want to use this, I went up to the DOE and I told the DOE, now you people are doing genocidal practices. These are all native Hawaiian kids and you're going to bust them one hour to Hana and one hour back. You might as well go downstairs right now and apply for welfare because you're going to kill their spirits. And by the time they eighth grade, they won't want to go to school. So, you know, I don't know. I give up. I give up. It's just... It's so frustrating, you cannot fight City Hall. They're going to kill the town anyway. You think? Why? They take away our school? We got two churches, one school. Take away the school, you got two churches. You know, what makes a town? What makes a little village? We would have no heart now. The school was a heart where we had our potluck dinners and get-together for the kids. Now there's nothing. 
no one here can remember a school on the island of Maui that reopened once it was closed. Even so, some folks in K&I want to keep fighting for their school, or a charter school, or maybe a Christian school. They've not yet been able to agree about just what to do. In the meantime, the K&I school is used as a church on Sundays, still full of the old books, touched by the hands of many generations of children. In Sioux County, Nebraska, three boys in 6th, 7th, and 8th grades and their teacher took me bushwhacking through a woody canyon. It was recess time. They wanted me to see a fort they built. It was the spring of 2005. See, to get up to our fort, we have to cross a fence, go down a hill, go up a hill, go down go another straight. hill. Okay. Yeah. Travis, Luke, and Nick were all born and raised in this country, and their teacher was too. Travis, if I fall in the hole and break my leg. Watch out, there's one right there. (laughs) The teacher supervised the construction of the fort after the boys read a book by Gary Paulson called Hatchet about a city boy who's in a plane crash in the wilderness. We've been reading Hatchet. We had talked a lot about survival. survival So we made a fort here where we can go. It's a little dome-shaped house made out of sticks and pine needles. Travis Johnson is 13. He was born just up the hill from here. That's metal art. That's what I'm trying to imitate. Travis and the other two boys are the only students at the Glen School this year. This part of Nebraska, close to South Dakota and Wyoming, is losing population. So unless someone with children moves into this school district soon, Glen School will close. But for now, because there are so few students, the teacher has a lot of flexibility. She takes them on field trips and lets them pursue the things they're interested in. Those are killdeer. Because it sounds like they say killdeer, killdeer. The result, she says, is confident kids who know themselves and the place they come from. That will help when, in a few years, they'll have to choose whether to stay in Nebraska or leave to find work. My job is to prepare them for those tough decisions. My my own children had to leave. You know, they couldn't get a job here that did what they wanted to do. It is a tough decision, but I want them to be able to be prepared to leave here. You know, motherhood is your biggest, your goal on being a good mother is so that you raise a child and you put everything in them that you can so that they'll leave you and they don't need you anymore. And that's exactly how I feel about teaching. I really, really, really try hard to make sure that my kids can go anywhere and succeed at anything that they want to do or try. Travis Johnson is eager to go to high school. He wants to play football, and he'll be happy to have some girls as classmates too. But he does say he feels lucky to have gone to this school, and he seems to understand what Mrs. Hurt has done for him and all the other students who went here. I don't really know anything that we haven't done with Mrs. Hurt. We've done just about everything. She's gotten us prepared for the real world. The real world being what? Away from Nebraska. Do you see the, the rest of the world as an inviting place, as an exciting place, as a kind of scary thing 
Or do you even think about it yet? I think it's kind of exciting and inviting because I've done mostly everything where I'm from and I think I need to move on. I've watched students all my life from the time I was a student in the one-room school excel. I've seen them go out into life and be very productive adults. Not all of them, you understand, but many, many of them. I think down the road there's a lesson in that. Somewhere somebody's going to have to understand. And we can't just talk about having smaller classrooms. We can't just talk about it. I think eventually education is going to have to stop and look at the example set by a one-room school and say, oh, my, maybe they weren't deprived. Maybe if they didn't get to play sports every day in a gymnasium, maybe that didn't affect their lives a whole lot. Maybe going to school and listening to the next kid's class and the next kid's class and having to help that kindergartner when you're an eighth grader because the teacher was busy, maybe there's something to that. Many, many things have been done correctly in one-room schools. And the results are there to read in history if you just turn the right page. Moni Hurt was the last teacher at the one-room school in Glen, Nebraska. At one time, a hundred families lived within walking distance of the school. Now there are no elementary school-age children left in the district. In June 2006, after 120 years of service, the Glen School was closed. When pioneers filled the countryside of Nebraska, one-room schools were everywhere, and the state has kept them open longer than most. In the 1950s, there were nearly 3,000 of them, but today they're closing fast, and only about 50 remain. In Croydon, New Hampshire, it's town meeting day, and a couple of hundred people fill the bench rows of the town hall, ready to get down to business. The next announcement I have to make as moderator, I would like to conduct a nice, friendly business meeting. We're the one-room school is the largest the expenditure in the town budget, and they are careful with their money here. Why does it show under projection $57,600? First question. Second question is, shouldn't that $57,600 Read $36, but every year since 1780, the citizens of Croydon spend the money and do what they need to do to keep so the Croydon School open because they're happy with the results. 56 plus 10? I need some help with 56. I know you need some help. Do your ones first. Okay. What's in the ones there? Um. Oh. Look down. Which one is the ones, Spencer? Fifth, um, right here. Spencer. I don't want you to just say something. I want you to look at this number here and tell me. The teacher at Croydon School is Lynn Touchette. She has 17 students this year from kindergarten to third grade. She works with them individually as much as she can and gets them working together many times a day. Okay, I mean, I would kind of. 
want to read this or me? Right here? Sure, I will. Okay. All insects have three main body parts. The first main bo body part is the head. Okay. Do you want, let's read this one next. How many body parts does an insect have? Three. Yeah. Read that one. The Croydon School works like all the one-room schools I saw. The difference here is that the community is not isolated. It's just two hours from Boston, and they could easily send their kids to a larger school ten minutes down the highway, but they just don't want to. We don't want our little children to go even, you know, 10 or 15 miles down the road or have to ride a bus in the morning. We want to bring them in. We want them to know who their next-door neighbor is. We like the fact that we have a teacher that knows each one individually and that, you know, no matter what's going on, we get that phone call if it's needed. We love the personalization that's there. Carol Marsh is on the school board. Her daughter and her grandfather went to this school. I have concerns uh, that Croydon is going to grow to the point where I, I can see just this year numbers making it un, you know, impractical to keep the school open. School board president George Cacavaro moved to Croydon from a few towns away. There's, there's a definite anxiety, an underlying anxiety in the community. I can't tell you in the past month how many conversations I've had about did you hear that piece of land sold? Did you hear they're developing here? It wouldn't take long for five or six families to move in, and we're, we can't handle it here. If you drive by the Croydon School at recess, you'll see a red brick one-story building with tall windows and a bell tower. And a lucky visitor would find the teacher sitting at a picnic table, singing an old song with her youngest student. Grab your coat. There are only three public one-room schools left in New Hampshire now, and only about 300 left in the country. It may be an endangered institution, but some of its methods and values will live on. Educators and parents have embraced its hallmarks, the small classroom size, the peer-to-peer -peer teaching, the same teacher for more than one year, and the close ties with the community. Ask someone who went to a one-room school or who taught at one about how to improve public education today, and you'll get an earful about that essential connection between one teacher and one student. I'm Nina Ellis. Good job, Jessica! Clap, clap, clap. Wasn't it beautiful? <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to The One Room School in the 21st Century by producer Nina Ellis. This is ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. We've been talking to Nina throughout this hour. And Nina, in all the schools you've visited, just in general, what do you think is the best thing that these schools have to offer? Well, I think the kids feel very secure. Uh, Many times they are in schools and even sitting in desks where their grandparents and parents went to school. These are kids who are deeply rooted in the place that they're from. And it's a hard thing to quantify, but I felt like the kids were very comfortable, very secure, very confident kids. They were easy to talk to. They weren't wary of me. They were welcoming and open. And it's an intangible quality, but for me, it was unmistakable. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the one-room schoolhouses have something to teach the urban schools and that the urban schools have something to teach the one-room schoolhouses? Or are they just too different to mesh or compare or exchange information? It's really hard to compare, Gwen. Uh, And I'm not an education expert, I should say that. I came at this with more of an historical bent. But it seems to me that, um, as one of the teachers in the series said, you know, we can't just keep talking about smaller classroom size. Uh, These one-room schools are really uh, a laboratory to look at and see what can happen when you have a small classroom size and a teacher that's involved in a student's life for more than one year, too. You know, I've heard from teachers who teach in huge schools. I actually have a a cousin who's a dean at a public school in Joliet, Illinois. She says there are 3,400 students at her high school, and she talks to kids every day who tell her that they have a class and they don't know the teacher's name. And they say to her, well, why should I learn the teacher's name when the teacher doesn't know my name? And, you know, I don't think you need a lot of studies to prove that there's something wrong with that situation and that the kids are losing out. Nina, these originated as a series of stories that aired on Morning Edition. What was the response that you got? initially? Well, you know, it's always interesting to hear from Morning Edition listeners. They're very, they're very responsive. And I heard from a lot of people who went to one-room schools or who taught at one-room schools or who had an Aunt Ethel who taught at one-room schools who were so happy to hear about them and to hear that they still existed. I also heard from people who said things like, gee, you know, where where should I move if I want to put my kids in one-room schools, uh, which was surprising to me. Um, and I said, you know, get in touch with the state of Montana. They have more one-room schools than any other state, and they're doing a lot to keep them uh, healthy. When all is said and done, at the end of visiting and at the end of your kind of journey through this unknown area of education and rural living, you know, do you have any overriding thoughts about it, about what you'd learned, or about what you'd come away with? Well, a couple very strong thoughts. One, before I did this 
series about one-room schools, I was thinking about doing a series about education, and I didn't know what it would be, and I was talking to people I know who are teachers or who work in public schools, and you know what I heard from them, Gwen, was almost uniform exasperation, you know, frustration, you know, how hard it is in the public schools. People who were just didn't know how long they could keep teaching. It was just, uh, they were just overwhelmed all the time. And that was the opposite was what I heard from teachers in these very rural schools. They loved it. They couldn't imagine doing anything else. Uh, they were fighting to keep their schools open in many cases, but there was a complete dedication and love for their school experience on a day-to-day basis, which was a dramatic contrast. Secondly, one of the other reasons I wanted to do this series was because I feel like, especially when I first started doing the research in 2004, was during the presidential campaign, and I felt like there was a growing misunderstanding in this country between urban and rural. And coming from a fairly small town myself and having spent most of my adult career in Washington, D.C., I feel like I live in both worlds. And I was feeling somewhat alarmed at what I saw as a division in this country between urban and rural. So I saw this as a way to bring some of these rural issues to public radio listeners because these issues are often overlooked. We don't hear about them very often. And I feel like it's one way to understand uh, our country. We've been talking with Nina Ellis, producer of The One Room School in the 21st Century. The music was composed and performed by Howard Levy and recorded by Joel Fox. Flon Williams was the technical producer. Funding support came from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Arts and Humanities Council of Montgomery County, Maryland. I think that we better change or else we'll get into trouble. Right? Right. Goodbye! ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.